Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, the Massachusetts Historical Society is filled with the important papers of important Bostonians, like the Adams family, but it also has the papers of Thomas Jefferson. It also has a numerous collection of clothing. With us to discuss a recent exhibition of the Massachusetts Historical Society and the book that resulted from it is Kimberly S. Alexander. She is a professor of history at the University of New Hampshire, where she teaches in the area of material culture. Her last podcast with us, her appearance on the podcast, was in episode 89, The Stories in Shoes. Kimberly, welcome back to Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for inviting me back, Al. I really enjoy doing this and sitting down and talking talking with you. I, If it's all right, I'd like to um, extend some thanks because this whole project uh, relied on the the goodwill of so many supporters. We had a Kickstarter program. Wow, which, this is a yeah. Kickstarter? This was Kickstarted. Yeah, yeah. So the, <laughs> the whole catalog, uh, when you go in on the, the, the front pages, you'll see the names of all of our Kickstarter supporters. And I, I have to thank them for really stepping up the, to the plate to make this happen. Um, and even in some ways, even more than that, their patience, because this was a I don't know if this will ever become a term, but this was a COVID book. We started working on it, and then we had some uh, changes in staffing, and then I got a, a, a full-time position, and and then COVID hit. And so the book came out much later than we'd hoped, and yet our supporters were with us the whole way. So I'd like to thank the Kickstarter supporters, um, thank the uh, director and president of Massachusetts Historical, Catherine Al Gore, and her predecessor, Dennis Fiore, who believed in this project, which goes way back to about 2016. So we've been working on this for a while. Andine LeBlanc, who was the editor, uh, is uh, MHS's editor, and who put in just uh, heroic efforts to, uh, to get this across the finish line, um, and the entire Massachusetts Historical Society staff. And then my, my partner um, with the, throughout this whole project uh, was Ann Bentley, who's the curator of art and architecture, or sorry, art and um, artifacts at the Massachusetts Historical Society, who I've been working with since at least 2014 or 15. So I, I just want to get across, I may be talking about these, uh, these objects and these artifacts, but um, they would not be put together in this book or even in the exhibit without uh, dozens of people, um, designers, uh, mannequin makers, Estrita Schaefer who made mannequins, our conservators who conserve textiles, uh, designers, uh, installers. It's as, as you know, Al, and you hear this all the time, of course, but none of this um, happens just because of one person. Well, it's interesting because even as acknowledgments and books are getting bigger, the work of, of scholars seems sometimes even more solitary, not just because of COVID. COVID just accentuated it. And yet books like yours, you, you material culture people, you <laughs> always work in packs. It's always, they all, this always comes by, even your book on shoes, which you wrote, you know, mm. you wrote by yourself. It requires right. uh, 
curatorial support and support from right. exhibitions and support from all these people to be able to look at things and, and to hold right. them and touch them and smell them and whatever else you do. Um, <laughs> it, it's always so, it's always so refreshing. I find it very refreshing that, that there's a community behind this book. Yeah. Well, I love, I, actually, I'm going to uh, probably steal your phrase about that we work in packs because I think that's very, very true. Every, every pair of shoes that I looked at for, uh, for my previous book had at least one to five people involved in the process. <laughs> and, you know, so, so it really is, um, and it's a wonderful community, I have mm -hmm. to say. I just, whether the museum, material culture, textiles, um, architecture, so on, the material culture community is is a fabulous one. Well, I, I've spent more time talking with, with the material culture people at, at Colonial Williamsburg than I yeah. needed to for my research. But uh, what it, always I love about going over to the vaults in, the, in that building uh, with someone is uh, that I know for the next 15 minutes, I'm going to get a tutorial. It's the enthusiasm that people of that community have for conveying the treasures and the, the let's put this up. We'll get back to this, but the beauty of what they are mm. curating and, and I mean, curating, I mean, uh, holding, yes. uh, holding up to you sort of an outstretched hands. Look at this. Isn't it, isn't it pretty? Isn't this nice? Isn't this right. neat? You know, I, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's get back to so, something uh, that, uh, we've been talking about as if it's normal, uh, but it's probably what listeners will ask f about first. What in the world is clothing doing in a Massachusetts <laughs> historical society? How did, how did it get there? Well, you know, uh, I, I started wondering, there's probably a history to this. Um, when, when is it Jeremy Belknap, when he and the other people yes. who put together the Mass MHS uh, in the 1790s, very far ahead of their time and putting together an institution like this. But there must have been a point where someone first gave a suit of clothing, right. and and the cure and the and the, they said, "What? Why are you doing this?" Or or didn't they? I don't know. Well, I think I think what's very interesting, um, the question that you asked is actually the one that, uh, in some ways, got me started um, working with the collection at the Mass Historical. Was when I was working on my previous book, I just was trying to find all the pairs of uh, shoes and textiles I might not know about. And I contacted Ann Bentley and she said, oh yeah, we've got some shoes, we've got some dresses. And it was a one of those aha eureka moments when I actually walked into the collections and saw Rebecca Taylor Biles' uh, 1730s uh, wedding shoes and wedding dress. Um, and, and they hadn't been on view for who knows how long. And it started making me wonder, how did these things end up here? There was not necessarily a process, certainly early on, of collecting textiles. They came in with the documents, with the diaries, with the manuscripts, with the family letters as parts of collections. But over time, because of the different needs that you have for storing textiles from uh, paper-based objects or paintings or anything else, they start to, in some cases, get separate from their original um, sort of provenance or hierarchy, at least within the collections. And so what we started to do was to bring that back together. So, so what are the needs for textiles, if you could explain that to us, as opposed to paper? Because I guess paper needs are different from different technologies of paper. Well, and there's, the storage requirements are different as well. I mean, uh, for textiles, if in a perfect world, and again, 
most institutions do not have the funds to house their textile collections in the way that they might like, which could be one or two garments per huge textile box. But you're looking at acid-free papers, uh, large-scale boxes so that you can fold or uh, gently uh, flat, lie flat pieces of clothing rather than putting them on hangers. If you are using hangers, which can put stress on the, the various seams and threads, you need those to be padded. There's a whole slew of, and then of course, that's before you get to uh, temperature, humidity, and so on for textiles. And even papers are going to have different requirements depending on whether they're rag or uh, cotton or uh, more recent papers or what the inks are. But it, it, there still is a general sort of separation in, in a place where you have the ability to store textiles differently than you would store your manuscripts, which at a place like MHS will probably be in much higher usage and demand than something like some of the textiles, which is a relatively small collection in terms of what is actually at MHS. But once you start to bring in their collection of paintings and other artifacts, it just, it, it blossoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking also that I was wondering the collection of textiles, if I added up all the, the big historic museums, if I added in all the county historical societies on the East Coast alone, I'll bet there are a lot of textiles. There's, there's, there are a lot of stories to be told here. Yes, and there, there are so many. You can basically I, this, uh, this summer, I was working at the Stratum Historical Society in Stratum, New Hampshire. They have a phenomenal collection of textiles, including some uh, local um, homespun uh, and hand woven probably also hand-dyed garments from the early 19th century. But, and I, I did write about those, but there are these wonderful things tucked away. The problem with both preserving textiles and storing them is it's very expensive, as is conserving them. So uh, textiles are both a wonderful thing, but they can also be very difficult, especially for smaller institutions to to maintain and take care of. So what can clothes tell us about the past? Um, oh. We can, we will be trying, I mean, I'll probably steer the conversation a lot towards differences in fashion, mm -hmm. um, but we should talk about the more, less obvious things about clothing. Right. Um, which you get into in great detail in this, in the, in this exhibition catalog. Yeah, well, I mean, where, to, yes, where to start. So one thing is materials how uh, what a garment is made of often has a lot to do with telling you um, who would have worn it. Uh, right up front, it's important to recognize that most of the clothing that is housed at MHS is elite clothing. Um, the, uh, the collections that came in were from largely, at least initially, um, were from elite Bostonians. The, Olivers, the Taylors, the Biles, the Leverets, you know, these old New England names. And the papers are there and some elements of their clothing are there. So this is not a collection that is going to be fully representative of, of clothes of working people. And there are far fewer remaining examples of clothes of working people because they were basically worn and worn and passed down and recut and remade. And so one of the things that we look at 
um, but that we find even in the clothes of the wealthy is how often they did remake and, and alter clothing um, for their purposes. For example, um, if you're wearing something of silk versus something of uh, a wool, um, or the colors, even the dyes, the dye stuffs would often distinguish where you were, where you were in the socioeconomic scale. So, if you could afford um, a high-quality dyer, and you can find them advertised, for example, in all the Boston newspapers. James Vincent was one who talked about his ability to dye uh, for every season. And he had all the latest access to colors coming out of Europe and coming out of England. But we also find that those who did not necessarily have access to those expensive dyes were making their own dyes um, at home. And so in uh, one of the first pattern or one of the first how-to guides after the revolution was Asa Ellis's A Country Dyer's Assistant which was looking at um, how Americans, after the revolution, could uh, dye their own clothes in fashionable colors. So some of these ideas start in one place, um, and then there are these sort of workarounds you know, that I like to think, of, to think about. Now, some of the, the clothing, it's not until 1850 that you have the chemical dyes that no longer what we call go fugitive, so they are not as affected by light um, and other sorts of deleterious conditions. Before that, you're looking at dyes that are animal and plant and mineral based. And those have a tendency to change in exposure to light. Purple was particularly notorious in the um, 18th century for uh, being a fugitive color, blues. Indigo was uh, very much a sought-after color, and sought-after color. And I'm sure many of your listeners have seen. There's a huge uh, interest in colors of indigo taking hold in all the latest fashion uh, magazines and so on over the last few years. So color, uh, the type of fabric, even the level of um, obviously the ornamentation that could be added to a man's waistcoat or a woman's petticoat. All of these things would indicate something about the wearer. One of the things that's in this collection at MHS that we see though are how many of the clothes were actually altered. So even though they may have started off their life uh, belonging to you know, a lieutenant governor or so on, you see that they were altered um, by adding gussets to the shoulders or the sides or the necks to as a, uh, perhaps um, a man increased in, I use the word girthiness as he became more successful. He still cut onto the waistcoat because he wore a jacket over the waistcoat. So, um, or we see wedding dresses being altered and worn by subsequent generations like Rebecca Taylor Biles' beautiful 1747 silk damask dress was altered well into the 19th century and continued to be worn by the family. Or you uh, suggest that there's a, and we'll talk about this a little bit, there's a red cloak belonging to Henry Bromfield. Yes. Which you suggest may have been altered to be a woman's cloak probably Poss 20 years later after it, his death. Yeah, yeah and, and maybe even longer. It was And it was very um, 
uh, quickly altered too. It was basically just a very quick sort of whip stitching under the collar so it wouldn't be seen just to pull it up in front so you wouldn't step on it, which is hmm. you know, why we're thinking it may have been a, a woman or a, a, a young adult. Um, so, and even in those, I'm actually glad you brought up those two red cloaks because one belonged to Peter Oliver, wealthy loyalist, and one belonged to Henry Bromfield, who was a, a, a merchant. Um, and while to the RI today, you see red cloak, but to somebody who knows a lot about tailoring uh, and quality of materials. Oh, you, 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 know, you knew exactly what I was going to ask you. I wanted okay. to wait on that, but can we, can we okay. wait on that? Sure, Cause we I, can Because I wanted to, I wanted that this was like a side-by-side, -side, two red cloaks. This is how I could, with, with Kimberly's yeah. assistance, I said to myself, I could bring in my tailoring Absolutely. eye. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I should say, this is, I mean, this is, seems kind of silly uh, to have on a podcast, an audio podcast, uh, to be talking about these examples, but the Massachusetts Historical Society is one of the leaders in digital Yes. collections in the United States and everything we're, we're going to talk about is online and if you go to the show notes usually I'd say just listen to it on the, the the Apple or Google or player of your choice or Deezer or whatever you're listening to on uh, but you should in this case absolutely go to our webpage historicallythinking.org and look for the podcast and you'll see a sort of guide uh, point by point as we move along from object to object uh, so that you can follow on what we're talking about and take a look at it for yourself. But before we do that, <laughs> um, the fact that even the uh, that even the Bromfields and the Leverets, who are the sorts of family in Boston that believe that their papers belong in the MHS, mm. that's, so they're elite. Then they are they see themselves as elite. In other words, uh, they see themselves as important enough to be to have right. their papers re re reside there, and yet they're modifying their clothing. It tells us something about the expense of clothing. It's not just New England thriftiness. Right. Uh, I was just mentioning it to a, f a friend of mine, a mathematician, and, and who's just not something he thinks about. I said very casually that when you look at a Virginia probate record in the 18th century, the, other than enslaved people, the most expensive thing that people own are the bed linens right. uh, and the linen chest. And he was stunned by this. But yeah. this, is the, this is the case. And this is the case, you know, I lived in the house my grandparents built in 1931 yeah um and they had large closets by this by the standards but of the time but small closets by our standards mm -hmm. people did not have many clothing for most of of history uh, right. we are awash in clothing right um and it's hard to convey that to people um yeah and, it, and why that was the case well, I think I, I just uh, with the probate inventories, one of the things that I have found fascinating is that in, um, in the 17th and 18th centuries, uh, particularly in the up to about 1750, you often see textiles as a list along with cash. So they would be valued. Um, they, you could pay debts with something like your textiles. They had a, a real market value like cash and so um, the uh, uh, British historian John Stiles talks about in the the clothing of everyday people um, the fact that 
if let's say a, a young man, and I'm paraphrasing terribly, but was thinking about getting married, he might stock up on little snippets and bits of fabric that he could buy at a secondhand store at an auction, which, and by the way, that was everywhere in America too. There was always a back room at any auction house where they had secondhand clothes. Um, but he might buy something like a bit of silk or uh, a gold lace um, and you could put it away for a rainy day because it had a cash value if you needed it at some other point. And I think that's something that's a really interesting way that we do not think about our textiles today. I mean, yes, there's Posh and there's, you know, Etsy or places where eBay, obviously we think places where you can resell items, but, but we don't think about the fact that you might save these things and that they would have some sort of value down the line. Um, unless, unless you have really, of course, whatever designer clothes. One of the things that I'm fascinated by that you touched on is, is um, uh, next semester at the University of New Hampshire, I'm teaching a class called From Homespun to Fast Fashion. And we look at the four main sort of global fibers and then what happened once we started moving into man-made fibers, polyesters, uh, things like that, petroleum-based, uh, chemically produced, fibers that now we're dealing with and how do we want to address that. So the first half of the class is understanding the fibers and the textiles and their production and their value and how we've come to now have this throwaway um, society in terms of our clothes and what to do about that. So I'm hoping that we'll end up with a, a sustainable recycling program for textiles at the university if all goes well. <laughs> So let's, one more question before we look at pretty pictures um, or pictures of pretty things or some kind of pretty things. Um, did Puritans really dress like Puritans? <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I, 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 I always thought they did, but then I read that Oliver Cromwell's chancellor at the University of Oxford, John Owen, used to strut about in red boots. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't sound Puritan to me. So, uh, but, or did New England Puritans dress like New England Puritans or did they, dress, I mean, what's, what, what's, what are our stereotypes and, and are they... Well, are they based upon anything? Well, this is this is like a, a, a whole sort of uh, myth-busting episode in and of itself, and maybe we should do a whole we separate do, podcast on, on that. that. Yeah, because because one of the things that you find, for example, um, going through some of the probate inventories for some of the uh, early Puritans, going back, actually, I've looked at a few inventories from the 1600s, and you have... Um, women having yellow silk bodies, right, which were their, their corsets, um, and uh, red petticoats, and things like that. So this idea of this lack of color is, um, uh, is, not, is actually not supported by the, by the documentation. The, the other thing, though, that's often, um, and this is not my particular area of specialty, but when you look at what you think of as these Puritan portraits with black and white white lace, those are actually very expensive clothes. Yeah. And so the 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 more delicate the uh, the lace ruffs, the collars, the higher, the the uh, the type of lace that's used, the linen, whether it's from you know from Holland and so on, even black is an exceptionally hard non-color to achieve at that time. So there are a whole series of different interlocking stories about 
this idea of what Puritans actually wore. It's sort of like this idea that um, when you looked, used to look at these colonial revival houses, right, and or sorry, colonial houses, and during the colonial revival, you get everybody painting things, these pale grays and pale blues and whites, right? But now that we have the technology to actually look through these paint layers, we find this was not the way it was. Uh, my favorite example is the early 19th century Robin's Egg Blue House at Historic Deerfield. Um, uh, you know, it's like the Sistine Chapel of, of houses on historic Deerfield Street. It's this bright blue. Well, they did the, the analysis, the paint analysis, and that's actually was one of the earliest layers of paint. <laughs> so, um, so this idea of how we perceive color, even today, you, when we're talking about colors um, like the red cloaks or a green silk dress um, or a uh, yellow gold, um, we don't, in our mind, in our visual sort of visual culture, we don't see those as being anything special because we can get whatever color we want. But colors signified uh, purple, gold, uh, red, those were expensive colors through certainly the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, and even uh, into the, the 18th. So, so we're trained to look at things very differently. Your appearance on the street in a town like Boston or Portsmouth or Philadelphia, um, your, uh, those from your time period would have had a very probably different impression than we would seeing someone else walk down the street yeah. today. It's a, it's a hierarchical society. Yeah. And the uh, visual cues, the visual cues were very different than we people, think people of wear today. things that indicate who they are. Right. And, and there's a language to pick up on that. Yeah. Um, it can, and it, it says different things that we can talk about that with wigs uh, when mm -hmm. we get to that, because wigs are, the language of wigs are, is fascinating how certain people wear certain wigs, certain professions wear certain wigs and so on. But this is something right. that's completely lost now for us. Yeah. Um, and I think this is one of the problems. I don't want to rant. I'll stop myself. But, you know, there's uh, when um, material uh, culture people tell me in the sort of, uh, let's call it the, uh, uh, it's a, the, the, the status, a weak status argument, um, that the, the, this is to show how the person is wealthy, mm -hmm. um, this, this garment. And sure, that's, that's a necessary, but it can't be the only thing. Right, be because that it's not even Weberian status. I mean, it's which is much more complex. Mm -hmm. um, different statuses are shown with different ways, and diff people right. have different statuses at different times of their life. And sometimes I can be sh showing with my clothes I have a high status when people know that my political status is low. So those are all mixed up, right? Um, and uh, it's a complex thing. Uh, right. It's a political thing because everything is political in a small town, mm -hmm. um, showing who you are. And there's also, and it's interesting that people, material culture people often t hate talking about the aesthetic, but sometimes people like things because they're pretty. Right. And that's hard to get at in the sources, yeah. which yeah. is maybe why we don't, we ignore it. But I'm pretty convinced that Peter Oliver <sighs> liked that red cloak because I think it's awesome too, because I think the red is yeah. stunning. It's a stunning red. Yes. And, and it's, it's, it's a striking ensemble. Right. Um, and that has to be part of it as well. Yes. Well, I, absolutely. And I think, and again, red, um, uh, a really strong red, 
um, like that probably came from the use of cochineal, which was a very hard uh, to come by um, color. You, it was basically made from small insects that you could only get in South America. There's actually a wonderful article. I, I, I don't, I think it might have been in the New York Times. I'm, I'm, I don't remember. I apologize. But um, a scholar who actually went through the process of making cochineal. We'll look, we'll look this up. Yeah. I have an intern do that. Yeah, and so it was fascinating what you actually had to do. You have to get the you have to get the bugs, you have to kill the bugs, you have to cover them in oil, then you have to dry them, crush them, all of this to get a couple tablespoons of, of this material. So we see a lot of red, uh, red wedding shoes, for example, which are mm -hmm. often made from uh, older bits of fabric or uh, because um, they, again, were something that you were going to wear for a long time. Right. So, so red was an important thing, but yes, Oliver knew he was cutting a figure in that garment. In a big garment. I mean, yes. if a, a red wedding shoe is sort of a is is coy, it's a hint. Right. It's a little. It's but it's like a, it's the cherry on top or on the bottom. It's mm. it's it's very nice, but it's small. It's it's niceness. It comes from it's being small. This right. cloak, as we'll see, is a statement. But let's right. talk about, it's very appropriate, this podcast will drop Monday of Thanksgiving week. It's very appropriate that appropriate then that we talk about uh, Priscilla Mullins Alden, yes. or at least a tiny fragment mm -hmm. uh, of from Priscilla Mullins Alden's descendants. Mm -hmm. um, I'll link to the, the myth of, of John Alden and Priscilla Mullins uh, in the show notes. But could you describe this fabric and, and why it's important and interesting? Sure. I, this is something you'll have to cut me off, Al, because this yeah. is something I'm still working <laughs> on. So um, I, the first thing, as, as uh, your listeners probably know, you have this small fat piece of uh, swatch of fabric. Basically, it's a couple of inches by a couple of inches. And it had been put in a small little daguerreotype box with a note from a descendant. So as a historian, the first thing you want to know is, well, is this what it says it is, right? So because we need to take often history, the, the family history, the little, the notes that are pinned to something are the way that somebody else remembers it. It's been passed down through generations. It may not actually be what you think it is. So the, my first thing, and Anne and I worked on this, and we also, this is one of the few pieces we were able to have a, uh, uh, textile specialist look at because we were very interested in, in in dating it and saying is this what we think it is but then there were also there's also the research that was involved and in the course of uh, my preparations for the exhibit I found four other pieces of <laughs> of this garment that had been cut up one is at the um, uh, Provincetown Museum which makes sense um, uh, one is at, uh, at that time it was Radcliffe, now part of Harvard, and one piece had come up for auction and is now in a private collection, and I cannot find it. Um, and that was, had been found in, the, uh, in an attic in a house on the Cape that had a link to the family. Now, the piece at Radcliffe and the piece at MHS both had the same handwriting saying that this was a piece of Priscilla uh, uh, Mullins Alden's dress. Then I wrote a few short 
blogs on this, and it appeared in the book and the exhibit, and uh, another family member reached out to me, <laughs> who, who, because of COVID, I've not yet been able to meet, um, who has a larger piece of it that was passed down directly to her, and she's got the, all the family lineage. So now we have five pieces of this garment, and it's my ultimate hope is that at some point we could have them photographed together and actually create a digital repeat of what the larger fabric looked like. Hmm. Um, in terms of the analysis, uh, uh, we worked with Camille Breeze uh, from uh, uh, Museum Textile Services, and we were able to determine that it was uh, that it's a wool um, uh, uh, wool damask fabric. Uh, probably from Northern Europe, identified from the actual wool fibers. And we also did a bit of a breakdown of the dye, um, I believe, but we weren't able to, that's, again, that was something that was um, not within the scope of this part of the project. So suddenly you're looking at this garment. Now, whether it, it belonged to Priscilla or possibly to her mother, who died shortly after um, they had landed in Plymouth. It, it, the, the history of Priscilla herself is important because of course uh, she lands, um, she's a teenager. She's I think 15 or 16. And by uh, the following spring, her entire family has died. Her brother has died, her father has died, her mother has died and the servant or apprentice who had traveled with them has died. So in a world of scarcity, she's actually doing, she's obviously alone and an orphan in the world, um, uh, but she's, as far as material goods, she's doing rather well. She has her mother's household items. Um, she, her father was a shoemaker, which is how I got into all of this, and she has the uh, uh, goods that he brought with him, knowing that they would need things like shoes or the ability to make shoes. Um, so she is not without, without means. Um, so this one fragment that survives led to all of this, and now, we're, <laughs> now I can start to put together this fragment of, of a dress that's in pieces, which is very exciting. So what kind of dress was this? Is it what what kind of design well, was this? Well, do, see do that's think? we don't we that's that we don't know. That's why I'm thinking if we can put the pieces together, we may be able to figure out if it was a piece of a household fabric or if it was, you know, like bed hangings. The pattern looks to me like similar dress pattern uh, uh, dress weight wools that I've seen. So I feel reasonably comfortable speculating that was probably for a dress, and that's what all the labels from the relatives say it was. But it could also be for um, some sort of uh, furnishing fabric as well, although I find that somewhat less likely. The other question is, you know, when did it actually, uh, when was it um, actually used and for what, you know, how, these are, did it come in on a later shipment? Was it something that was with uh, Priscilla or her mother when they first arrived? These are things that we may never be able to ascertain. Something even more ephemeral 
is a tracing from the Leverett family. Yes. Of of a of a, a pattern for a gown which mm-hmm. you then had recreated. Right. So could 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 you briefly tell that story? Because it's I, I, this is what talk about forensic analysis leading yeah. to it's it, it's a, it's a great yeah um, episode in the book. The, this was one of the uh, high points. Um, there were so many. This was actually I just have to say the fav- my favorite exhibit, the most exciting uh, that I've ever been able to work on, and it, it mm-hmm. really was a terrific group. So many people from all over, from Colonial Williamsburg, from uh, from um, uh, revolutionary spaces, you know, just, it was just terrific. I want to say one more thing, though, quickly about the, mm-hmm. the oh, Mullins, sorry. the Mullins um, piece of fabric. When you talk about, one of the things I talk to my students about is how technology is helping us so much right now. And I feel that at some point, we'll be able to do an, not only a fiber analysis, but maybe even looking for pollen or seed on any one of these pieces of fabric and get a sense of where it had been located over time. Oh, I'm sure. You know, so so rather than doing, you know, every piece that we looked at, and if we have time, I'll talk about um, uh, John Leverett's buff coat, but the, um, you know, the, the importance of leaving the patina, leaving things as close as possible, because we are just stewards. Mm-hmm. And MHS is is very, very good at doing that. So I think at some point we'll get more answers about the Priscilla Mullins Alden uh, fabric without having to do anything invasive to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the petticoat pattern, this was fascinating to me because um, there's a whole backstory, which again would take wait far too long to tell, but I'll, I'll, I'll try and sum it up by saying that one of the Leverett descendants created what was known as a pricking um, of the pattern on a petticoat, which had been brought over for, uh, he ultimately became, it was Governor John Leverett's uh, first wife, I believe, Hannah Leverett. And it was described by ancestors as being a, um, uh, a blue silk petticoat with um, silken uh, floss. Uh, And it was uh, like a light white silvery floss. So it would have had this wonderful sort of translucent quality. And this descendant actually had access to the the petticoat at some point and did this copy. Now, I don't know how it happened. Eventually, the actual original burned. And the same descendant recreated the petticoat design and it is at the Massachusetts Historical Society. So when I saw this, um, I thought, well, we have a design. I've got some great friends at Colonial Williamsburg. And so uh, working with uh, Janae Whitaker, the head of the uh, Mantua Milners and Mantua Makers Shop, um, and uh, a a number of uh, interns and staff people, Sarah Woodyard, for example, um, I said, what would you all think about trying to recreate this petticoat, you know? Um, And they said yes. And so they actually... Uh, we uh, had the the um, the entire 
uh, uh, drawing, the stencil, I guess would be the best way to describe it for people today, the pattern. And they were able to recreate the garment based on, because it was, it was to scale, so it had the right dimensions. Hmm a little bit wonky in the length, but for the most part, the right dimensions, what the stitching pattern was, the birds, the flowers, um, and they recreated it on a blue silk. And originally, um, uh, MHS was uh, going to um, uh, fund that, but what William, Colonial Williamsburg realized and the mantua makers is that they could use that replica uh, as, a, as a teaching piece, which made much more sense. So they recreated this wonderful, wonderful garment, which we had on view in the exhibit and which we write about in the book. Um, and, uh, and now it's at Colonial Williamsburg, hopefully continuing this process of educating. So it was an exciting project working across multiple institutions. Um, and I think that's another one of those sort of how, you know, if, if you're in this uh, line of work, you, you got great people that you can reach out to, as we did with this. So what was this, um, was this for everyday use or everyday wear? This was, this? This was a special, uh, it was described as a wedding petticoat. Okay. So, um, and there's, there's, there's a bit of dodginess on the, the family history of how it got there. It was actually, uh, or what time period it was from, but a number of my colleagues uh, who have expertise in quilted petticoats looked at this as probably somewhere around the mid-18th century, and we were able to find actually a bride um, from this time period who likely would have worn it, and that's all in the, in the publication. So there was a lot of sleuthing that went into, a lot of work that went into this one piece, which made it exciting to be able to bring something to life that, uh, in a way, um, uh, that had been lying in, uh, in a box. Um, because you can talk to people about a pattern, but if you can see the petticoat um, and talk about the process of making. Uh, and so there are wonderful um, uh, uh, photographs of the uh, milliners and mantua makers in the shop actually working on this. And uh, Ann Bentley and I bringing it back down to Colonial Williamsburg at the end of the exhibit. It was great, great fun. And picking up Bromfield's wig at the same time. Oh, they, they had re rehabbed that? or Yes, the wig shop made a replica of Bromfield's oh. wig for us after doing a study session at MHS before that. So the one thing people I, I should know is when they look at the picture of the Leverett petticoat um, is the extraordinarily accentuated um, hips yes. uh, from the side hoops. Could you talk briefly about side hoops? This is something, of course, I know your students, like mine, must be utterly fascinated by the whole question of corsets, right. side hoops, and right. all the other mechanics involved in elite fashion. Right. Well, the wonderful thing about the pattern that survived was it actually gave us this width. So we actually hmm. uh, were able to uh, build the, uh, or the, the petticoat um, and again, this is another part of the process. We work with a brilliant um, mannequin maker, Astrida Schaefer of Schaefer Arts. And so she had to build the under uh, form for this petticoat, which included these elaborate panniers or, or side hoops, which was part of the fashion. For elite, that was generally for presentation at court in elite circles. But you find American women wearing 
scaled down versions as well because it was stylish. But the thing about something like the pocket hoops, and if you, uh, for your listeners, if you see the images from the exhibition, what you realize is it required that much more fabric, which said right. you were that much richer, right? Because you could afford to have this fabric that was just covering these these side hoops. So um, so again, it's all part of that whole, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole Rococo idea of, you know, this idea of, of the stage setting, it, I think kind of fits in here really well. The idea of shadow and light and dark that you get mm -hmm. from candles and fires, but also from the clothing, from gold and silver and uh, silk and so on. Um, I think is really a part of all of this for the wealthy, for certain. And also the, um, I was looking at it, I reali finally realized that the uh, the side hoop skirt looks like an upside down tulip. Yeah. So the accentuation is like a moving flower, you know. Mm. Um, the, and it, so that, that turn, Rococo moving from more symmetrical forms to more sinuous sort of, you know, pseudo random, pseudo yeah uh, organic forms yeah and i think you know and you walked a certain way in the shoes that you wore and with those undergarments so there's more of a a glide and you, there's some mm -hmm. wonderful um uh historic costumers and reenactors that you can find all over uh, uh social media um who show how it actually looked to walk in these clothes and wear things with side hoops or to wear a, a, a Napoleonic Empire style fashion. Um, and I think those that helps us understand so much more about the time. Um, one of my students last semester, uh, actually uh, Sophie McDonald, a grad student, created a set of panniers or pocket hoops for her final uh, research project in the class. So um, that's one of the things that that I, I think students um, also find very engaging is the chance to actually work within what we call um, uh, experiential archaeology. And, uh, and I liked and I really enjoyed bringing that into this exhibit working with uh, Anne and I both enjoyed doing that. Now, I've heard some uh, experiential archaeologists of the Victorian era say that corsets mm -hmm. really are kind of comfortable and make you feel yeah. safe, and they're like a weighted blanket. But I can't imagine side hoops are, are fun to use, or, 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 or they just seem like something extra, like sort of right. side bags. Yeah, I, that, I've, I, that I can't say so much about. I mean, the thing is, is we have men's opinions about women wearing hoops, in fact, uh, there's some wonderful things uh, that we quoted uh, in the book um, from uh, no other uh, people like, actually like Ben Franklin and others who talk about uh, women's hoops as, you know, uh, blocking the streets, uh, letting them pass, uh, being fire hazards, um, looking like military armaments. So we have a lot of men expressing their feelings about these things. We don't as often find women's voice talking about side hoops. We, and the reason that we um, have more, I think there's been a lot of myth busting about corsets and bodices and stays um, because uh, a number of women are able, have recreated them, wear them for whether they are working at Williamsburg or Old Sturbridge Village or uh, as historical reenactors or whether it's part of the costuming community. And the, the uh, again, there are some great colleagues who've 
written specifically myth busting about corsets who say you know it helps your posture i mean some of people wear uh uh waist training belts you know today with velcro and stuff while they're working out same same kind of idea holds your posture back um I've had colleagues who've worked at places like Williamsburg and then gone on to other jobs and don't feel comfortable without wearing a corset. So, um, again, there's I, if that's a, a, a topic that you'd like to pursue, I can give you some excellent candidates to talk to about it. <laughs> that sounds like a, sounds like an interesting one. Let's move on to um, let's talk about that is it John Leverett's buff coat. Uh, yes, because that leads on to the. Waistcoat, really. Yes. Um, it, um, so briefly, what's a buff coat and why sure. does John Leverett have one? Well, actually, before I just want to mention to your readers Oops. that we also have evidence, uh, substantial evidence of men who also wore corsets and also mm-hmm. added padding to the chest of their waistcoats. So there are a lot of uh, secrets also that go on in men's and women's clothes. <laughs> so the, the buff coat is, um, is a piece of sort of light, uh, light armor, um, if you will, uh, made of buffalo or ox hide. It's a very, very thick piece of military wear. And this, the example, I think one of the things that you um, asked me early on, uh, Al, was what were some of the earliest pieces in the collection? This Leverett's buff coat um, from about 1640 was donated by uh, one of Leverett's descendants in 1801 or 1803. So it's been at MHS, and MHS was founded in 1791. So uh, they've been caring for this coat for a very, very long time. This was another exciting opportunity because we know that Leverett um, took part in the English Civil War. Even though he came to Boston as a young man at 16, he routinely went back and forth. And he was um, uh, in the cavalry, which would have made sense wearing this kind of a buff coat. This is an item that could be, uh, it was an expensive item. Uh, this very thick, heavy leather, leather, hand sewn. His particular buff coat, which you'll be able to see uh, in the links or going on the MHS site, had very fashionable sort of um, cutouts in the arms where you could have seen your fancy uh, uh, underclothing, uh, silk or linen or so on. One of the things that you don't see in it today is it originally had silver fasteners down the front um, of the buff coat, which probably were removed, uh, I don't know why, sold or given away. Often uh, pieces of things like buttons and fasteners were given away to family members so that everybody had one of something. We find that a lot. Um, But what was fortunate was in doing the research on this project, I found that the Peabody Essex Museum actually has a painting of John Leverett in the coat. And so there are three, there were three examples in the exhibition where we were able to pair exact clothing um, that was in the exhibit with a portrait of the person wearing it. And that is amazing. Now, you have to take into mind, into account artistic license, but when you take a look at the, the portrait at the Peabody Essex Museum, 
you see the silver fasteners and they line up exactly to the marks that still exist on the coat. Huh. You, you can see the, uh, the cutout in the, at the elbow crease yeah. in the painting. Um, the gauntlet, uh, the gloves, we don't have. Those have not survived. Um, but when you look at the original, you'll also see something really interesting. And this goes back to the issue of um, technology. There's, a, there's some, several stains on the front of the buff coat and several piercings, probably from javelins or pikes, some sort of uh, altercation, obviously, during the war. Um, we know that, that Leverett fought with a group of other uh, men from Massachusetts. But one of the questions we had was, um, is it blood? <laughs> it's likely that it is. But what, when we examined it, Anne and I found um, that it was on the surface, not coming up from underneath. So it may not have actually been Leverett's blood. Perhaps it was somebody who he w was riding with him or some other mishap um, or even horse. So one of the questions that we had was, well, um, you could do a, a test, scrape a little bit of the stain and have it tested very easily and inexpensively um, and find out uh, if it was blood or, and so on and so on. We opted not to do that um, uh, because anytime you take away something of the patina, there's always a chance that you're inviting some sort of other problem. And I think we feel very strongly that with, again, with the advances being made in technology, that at some point, someone's gonna be able just to scan that and get a reading on those stains without mm -hmm. having to do anything as invasive as scrape anything off the surface. So um, we decided in this case to use what we had on hand. Uh, again, the uh, coat was mounted by a Streeter Schaefer and um, it was one of the most challenging things because the leather had sort of, uh, as leather will do, uh, was very stiff. It, it still had a tremendous, tremendous amount of, of uh, pliant uh, qualities to it, but, but it was a hard piece to mount, I'd say. Mm -hmm. But here's this piece that was worn by Leverett. We know it was worn by Leverett. We know it was worn in the English Civil War. We have good reason to believe that when he came back, he also probably used it in some attacks on indigenous peoples as well. Um, and it was a very, uh, uh, ended up being a r rather common piece of, of gear, but the quality changed dramatically on whether it was for more of a, uh, uh, depending on who was, was wearing the, the mm -hmm. object. There's some cloth examples, for example, that, that survive, I think, in, maybe in Hartford. There's a lot of excellent research done on these buff coats. Yeah, uh, they are they're they're a uh, staple of New England soldiers during the wars with mm -hmm. the the Pequots and with the um, and uh, with the Medicoms uh, in seventeen what seventeen sixteen seventy six. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting that buff becomes a symbol of Whiggery, mm. uh, Puritans and Whigs. Buff and blue is their color, and that's yeah. how why yeah. the Continental Army is buff and blue. Yeah. That's why Washington takes the uniform of buff and blue. Yeah. Um, so buff has a history. Um, 
I was wondering too, I, I, it looks a lot like my fencing master. My first fencing master had a coat, which his master gave to him when he graduated, which was done by a Stockholm bus seat, bu, uh, bus seat repairman. Oh. And it looks a heck of a lot in a utilitarian way. Mm-hmm. It looks like very much like the front of this buff coat. Interesting. It's a, tra- a training jacket so that you can be poked and poked by your students without, you know, suffering any, yeah. any, any hurt. I wouldn't want to be poked by a rapier with a buff coat no. <laughs> uh, it w- uh, or a pike. It would do nothing, but it might, it would might from any incidental sort of um, cut made with uh, a rapier, a weak cut with a rapier. It might, it might do the job. Well, and often uh, they did wear, um, uh, I understand from uh, one of my students who's uh, an expert in, in armor that often this would be worn with a uh, breastplate mm-hmm. and other uh, sort of yeah. uh, pieces at particularly vulnerable points. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's sort of the under the under armor. Um, right, the other right. Armor, if it fits on. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about, a br- uh, or, man, we've gone way over when I, I expected, and I, I should have seen that, but let's talk about waistcoats. Sure. Um, William Taylor and Andrew Oliver's waistcoat, waistcoats. Um, William Taylor, that's good. I mean, it's it's good stuff. Andrew Oliver is really over the top. Uh, but here's <laughs> William Taylor, who's a Massachusetts lieutenant governor. Um, if you look to in the link, you'll see uh, what's described as a naturalistic Rococo pattern. Um, and, and this gets us to something that really happens around the time the Massachusetts Historical Society was founded, which is the transitioning of men's fashion to being something, let's put it this way, from something interesting mm-hmm. and uh, various, like women's fashion has always been and remains, to something much more um, remarkably conservative and conventional from 1790-ish to now. Mm-hmm. Um if you put on William Taylor's waistcoat in 1820, you would look as odd as you would if you put it on now. You would just look like some an, a bohemian freak in 1820 mm-hmm. or in, in, in 2022. Um, and that's a very interesting, that, that abrupt shift we may have time to talk about is, is yeah. always deeply fascinating to me. But it's also as fascinating as the fact that, okay, coats have gotten shorter. Right. Um, but not a lot has changed in a men's suit in 20, 2020, other than we don't wear them. Right. Um, but not as a lot has changed in a men's suit in 2020 with a men's suit 1820. It, the 200 years, the coat got shorter. Lapels became a little bit, but not that much. But mm. 1720 to 1820, a huge shift. So let's talk about these, these right. really flamboyant waistcoats and what they say about men's fashion at the time. Well, men's fashion is, I think, is something that that is that actually there's a lot of great again research and scholarship going on right now in menswear, um, all around the globe. But one of the things that you do find um, taking a look at something like the Taylor waistcoat, um, I've had the chance to look at other examples of similar waistcoats in collections, where they basically took the original waistcoat and just shortened it mm-hmm. for a more um, neoclassical kind of look. And so we actually still find some of these similar robust patterns being used. But I think what's, what's, what we need to look at is you go from this sort of 
heavy texture in men's and women's clothes, heavy brocades, pile velvets, heavy embroideries, uh, what we call uh, sequins, known as spangles, that are sewn into the elite clothes, uh, gold trim and lace. Um, and these uh, often large-scale patterns of florals, and we see it in the men's clothes as well as the women's, right? I this, want to emphasize these waistcoats, they look heavy. Yes, yes. They, they have weight to them and substance, which is just really striking when you look at them. And some of them up into the, you know, again, around mid-18th century, actually had wires in the tails mm -hmm. so that they would stick out much the way you think of the women's panniers. Yep. So this idea of the space that you occupied is something that um, I talk a little bit about in the exhibit and the book, but this idea that, that you had, it, it, it was kind of interesting, I did a whole thing about this during COVID, you know, your personal space, right? Who could approach you? And, and so what often happens is the wires have disappeared or been taken out of the men's coats and people don't realize that they actually flared out at the back um, in many cases because you are, again, adding to your personal space. Men were wearing high heels. Men had wigs and hats. You took up more height and more width in your personal environment, which was part of that, um, that presence, right? So, so that's one thing. After the, after the revolution, and it's not just the American Revolution, obviously, we're at a whole age of revolutions, mm -hmm. there starts to be a shift in clothing for both men and women, and you move away from these heavy silk brocades and these embroidered textiles. Now, it doesn't mean that some of them are not just as costly, but maybe there's more of a tone-on-tone -tone of, of netting or lace. Um, if you look at some of the men's waistcoats, in fact, there's an example of a, a young um, uh, uh, naval, uh, young man's uh, naval vest, which is all white on white, white um, uh, fabric, white embroidery, white buttons, but there was a lot of work that went on to that went into it. Um, women were wearing their long columnar gowns. Uh, what well, we th think of Jane Austen, and you think of the low shoes and uh, and bright shawls and so on, and men's costuming was doing the same thing, but so we see this change in men's wear, again from these longer, uh, long waistcoats, long coats, to shorter in the body and more tailored, as well. Mm -hmm. um, and we you, could say, let me just interject. You could say yeah. the same thing about wigs. So mm -hmm. there's a there's a dazzling variety of wigs. Which oh, mostly, yes. as you say, we mostly know from pictures and right. from diagrams and from it's probably sometimes from spoofs or satires that we might we probably shouldn't take too seriously. Mm -hmm. um, but what's very interesting is although the wig in America drops out very quickly, uh, the variety of men's hairstyles that right. express certain things um, that like the hilarious one, which is everything is swept forward. Right. Um, so that it looks like that you're in a strong gale is coming from right behind you. Um, that that variety of hairstyles for a while seems to supplant the wig by being as various as the wig, mm -hmm. and and requiring a lot of time, right? And requir acquiring a, a servant in order yeah. to do that properly, and product as and we would say lots today, of product, lots of product. Maybe sugar water, God help them, but um, <laughs> but it was product. Well, actually, one of the things that I find fascinating looking through men's purchases were the pounds of powder. 
that yeah. like the for example the Boylston family uh, going mm -hmm. through the Boylston family records and they're buying pounds and pounds of hair powder because mm -hmm. everybody in the family is using it. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and lavender, to lavender scented hair powders for men and women, things yeah. that, you know, that pomades, that's how you would keep things clean. Um, you needed wig stands, you needed wig curlers, you needed a, a, a dusting brush, you needed a bag full of powder. I mean, and it's, it, uh, it's endless. Endless. And it's very, always curious to me, there's periods in the life of the Continental Army where people are claiming that they're half naked and there's like one jacket to share between men of a mess when they stand guard. But at the same time, there's clear directions that their hair should be powdered and tied. Right. Right. Um, so that this, this is, this is like, this is all we've got left Yeah, is that we're going to powder our hair and tie it. Yeah. Um, so this is this, this emphasis on, on it's masculine presentation Yes. Um, of an elite disciplined unit. You're going to damn it. You're going to powder your hair right. maybe with flour, Hope it doesn't rain. Yeah, but th that's that's how that's that's how they roll. Yeah, well, I think the the presentation too of of men in their clothing. You know, you're talking about shifts in 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 fashion, um, or or shifts in in style. Um, but I, I see the same thing happening with women. But one of my favorite um, uh, books to read because it's it's. Obviously, it's George in London by Amanda Vickery, um, behind closed doors, but talks very eloquently about how important it was because generally the man was the one who was out in public. And so money needed to be expended on his clothing. And she uses examples of inventories where the woman was only buying a few items for herself throughout the year because the husband had not yet inherited his money and so on. Um, and so all the resources were going to making sure he had up to date, not only his clothing and his wig, but also his equipage, all his leather goods, his saddlery, uh, his horses, you know, all those sorts of things that went into that presentation. Now, and to a certain extent, you see that happening in some of the, the wealthy families as well. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I think there is that idea of the public face, but the the wig discussion. Um, one of my favorite images is uh, uh, that we actually used uh, reproduction of in the exhibit, is of um, uh, one of the Boylstons in his banyan and his cap, and you can see the day's growth of unshaved head underneath his cap because his valet had not yet come and dressed his head for the wig. And so those are these little things that you notice because everybody else would have known them too. This immediately would have said he was waiting for his... A, a banyan, by the way, is, is oh, sort sorry. of a, a dressing gown right. uh, that a gentleman of the time would wear. Um, and there's, can we also talk about the, the head thing? Because mm -hmm. this is always fascinating me. Uh, devotees of Jane Austen will know that, you know, women are always screaming that they can't be seen without their cap. Um, but obviously it's, there's something going on for at least, well, not even elite and bourgeois men as well. And I, I mm -hmm. suspect also working class men. Yeah. That, um, that uh, you can't be seen bareheaded. Right. Um, you have to have a hat on. You have to have a wig on. Um, if you don't have your wig on, you have a cap on. Mm -hmm. um, you have a turban if you're elite. 
but I mean, you lower tavern keepers and craftsmen, they wear turban-esque caps around the shop right. uh, when they're not wearing a wig. Right. Um, it's, there's a, there's a, it's almost a taboo. It's right. almost a, a cultural guardrail against exposing your intimacy yeah. uh, of, of the head. Did you, did, have you, is there, did you talk about that? Sure. Well, I mean, the research that I'm currently doing on um, looking at a northern New Hampshire family and through a day book um, shows the prevalence of buying different levels of felt or felted hats. Um, and whether there, some were listed as beaver felt, some were simply felted, some were knit caps. And you can start to see who was making the purchase and where they were in their sort of, and where they sort of fell in the socioeconomic status of the ta- status of the town. So Alden Sprague, who was a day laborer, who basically signed an, uh, basically an indenture indenture for a day's worth of work, was wearing knit caps, and we have him purchasing one. Then you can find um, uh, Ephraim Metcalf, where he finishes his apprenticeship and he's 21, he goes to Montgomery's store and he buys three linen shirts. He buys um, a pattern, a vest patterns, and he buys two felt hats. This was an expensive purchase for him, but it signified for him that he'd finished his apprenticeship and he was getting ready to get married. Um, then we can go through and find one of the most wealthy men in the town coming in and buying it, there's not much of a description, but the hat was at least three times the cost of the felted hat. So I'm assuming it was uh, a much uh, custom-made sort of item by one of the local hatters. And that's in 1793, which is the only year that this daybook covers. So you can actually link how much people were spending. You can roughly figure out what they were making per day and how much they were spending on things like hats, which ended up being a considerable expense for some of yeah. them. There's a, there's, a, there's a language of hat use, too, which I don't yes. quite understand. Um, I was just reading an account of Washington's farewell address in 1783 to the Continental Congress, or to the United States Con- Confederation Congress. Um, and they're copying they're probably what they've done in colonial legislatures. It's what the Parliament would do in London. Uh, they, their hats are on as they mm. sit down. Uh, and they remove their hats briefly when he comes in, but then put them on again. There's a sort of language to show yeah. that he must be deferential to them, um, that he's mm-hmm. a servant of Congress. Um, and this is all carefully noted down by one of the spectators mm-hmm. for, for whom this seems to be important. Right. Um, well, and actually, since you mentioned Washington, as, as, as you know, he did not... Uh, wear wigs but insisted that his hair be properly dressed and powdered Mm -hmm. so i think um the portraits of a number of the patriots like uh sam adams without you know without wigs that tells us a lot about and that's one of the things that i talk about in the book is how your clothing uh where what you wore how you wore it and where you bought it um, gave a great deal of indication of whether you were a patriot or a loyalist, yeah. but that's, yeah, we don't have we, we don't, don't have time, time get, for that. No, because you have a. I, I was saying, I wish Kimberly had written this whole little essay on George Washington's suit, because you have a, a great thing on his inaugural suit. But I want let's let's uh, I want to close off with two things. I want to close off with two red cloaks, and then okay. uh, 
the Empire versus S-Curve dress, just to finish off. Um, so we've got a cloak from Henry Bromfield, um, mm-hmm. who, like James Monroe, was the last president to wear breeches. Henry Bromfield seems to have been the last, probably the last man in Boston to wear breeches. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got a red cloak. And then we've got Peter Oliver. And, and this, this red cloak of, of Bromfield's is, it, it seems to be ma- made later. Yes. Uh, than the one by Oliver, but let me just. So here's my chance. Here's my chance to work on my tailoring eye with your, your, <laughs> with your tutelage. I'm looking at these two, and, I, and listeners can can look at our webpage and compare them side by side as I'm doing. Um, it, so one thing I'm aware of is that the Oliver color looks much richer and deeper. Mm-hmm. I suspect that's just that. I don't know whether that's the dye or whether that's the way they've been stored. Um, the of course, what then I notice is the Oliver one looks to me to be much showier and more expensive. Yes. Why do I why do I say that? Oh, because I see it has two really two collars. One's mm-hmm. almost a mini cape. Yeah, um, I can see like there's that that trend. Eventually, there'll be a third. You know, there'll be a third cape on top, and also there's a hell of a lot of buttons. Yep, and uh, they're not utilitarian. They're there to break up the silhouette. And I realize that's a nice thing because the front of these cloaks is like the size of Nebraska. Um, <laughs> and to have that line of buttons down the middle breaks it up very pleasingly. I see also that um, the pleats in the Oliver are much deeper and regular, mm-hmm. uh, which I would assume is done by some clever tailoring trick, which mm-hmm. ca- takes time and money to do. Um and that's all I got. That's why I think that Peter Oliver is yeah. is is a higher price piece of a higher piece of goods, a, a better piece of goods, as my grandfather yeah. probably would have said. Well, you're you're you are correct. I mean, the one thing that you can't that none of the photos can tell you is that the weight of the Oliver coat, the wool itself, is much much heavier. Oh, nice. Um, also, if you take a look at the, the details um, that we have in, in the book, and it'll be on the website, you'll see that the buttons are very beautifully covered. Mm-hmm. They're tone on tone, but there's actually a slight weave pattern to each to the buttons. Look at the finishing of the buttonholes and it's... even of the trim. This is mm-hmm. really master tailoring. And I think the double collar is something that also that you noted, Alice, is really important. It's almost like that capelet, but you could still take that inner piece and turn it up and we show it turned oh, up. Oh, yeah. You can turn it up and, 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 and put it across your neck. Exactly. Throat. So very that nice. you have this extra added warmth. So this was, yes, very much an expensive piece and people would have known it. Bromfield's piece is certainly something that would have been incredibly common and i love thinking about capes also because they were i like to look at items that crossed gender um and so both men and women wore red capes or any sort of cape it was a standard obviously here particularly in new england but there's a huge variety whether they're made of wool whether they're uh, lined with uh, a different type of fabric whether they're lined at all whether they're uh, silk and so on what we have with Bromfield's um, cloak, first of all, the, the, uh, the fabric itself, the textile, is not as robust. If you notice, when you look at the photos, you'll see just this little line of silk down the front, but it doesn't continue. It's not fully lined. It's sort of a little bit of a, a flare to add a little something special, 
but it wasn't going to the whole. It was about more about an appearance, I'd say. Mm-hmm. The um, the collar itself here, we have a one stage collar, and uh, you, it's simply tied at the neck. You don't have the any uh, pretense of the buttons, and as you mentioned earlier, underneath that front flap, and you can just see in one of the photos, you'll see where the the rough stitching went to hike it up um, and make it shorter in the front. But this would have been a very standard um, outerwear piece. And we find it's it's one of the pieces, again, that cross gender, but also um, could be used as easily, you know, throughout the entire 18th century. With, with some changes to length. Or, and so we find a lot of these uh, capes are altered. Yeah. Um, and they may have been meant for men and worn by women. Um, you know, it wasn't like in this case with this one with a tie that it mattered where, which side the buttons and were on, right? So, so this is very interesting, especially with what we know about Bromfield. Because and this is something that I think is also very important when we look at fashion, and maybe this is the best way to conclude, is that we have these examples that have survived, and they tend to be examples from families who felt they were worth saving for whatever reason. Uh, Generally, not always, but generally they tend to be from youthful events, a a ball, a party, a wedding, a dance, meeting George Washington, being introduced at court. So they often tend to be more in good shape or smaller size. You know, it's sort of the the way I talk about it is you don't necessarily, unless you won the marathon, you might not keep your pair of Nikes, right, um, forever. Uh, so, so you keep certain things. So the very idea of collecting is not going to be a scientific study, right? And the other thing that goes with that is the idea of age. So we look at things as the height of fashion, the Empire, the Empire style, the Regency style, uh, the Rococo style. But somebody like Bromfield was comfortable wearing the clothes he wore as a younger person, and he continues to wear them. We know that Abigail Adams, although she had a dress, that was uh, of the empire style. She wore a, a, a wonderful uh, fichu and, and piece to fill in so that it was not immodest. Um, we know that as women started to wear these columnar gowns, they uh, didn't have pockets under petticoats. They were carrying reticules, but some women still wanted to carry their pockets. You know, this idea that somehow because something is suddenly fashionable, everybody did that is, is, is illogical. No one flips a switch. We know this. Right. And we know this. But, when, but it's important to keep that in mind when we're looking at fashion. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. I always hear from people, oh, everybody was so small back then. Mm-hmm. Everybody was so this. Everybody was so that. Well, actually, if, this, if you're getting married at 16 or 18 or 21, yeah, you might be wearing a smaller size than after you've had many children and are at a more mature per- part in your life. And that goes for men and women. And we mm-hmm. see the same evidence in, going back to the tailor waistcoat. There are gussets added to the side. There are expansions added to the shoulders and even to the back 
um, to make it fit uh, a larger person. Um, so, so we need to keep these things in mind too, I think, when we're looking yeah. at fashion. It's nice that we can, in these clothes, we can see that. Right. The future, we won't be able to see that because clothes will have been disposed. But we can see that the modifications have been made to clothes. I guess we'll have to look at bills and, 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 and sales records of mm -hmm. some kind, whatever survives from the 21st century, to see the way that people adapted and mixed and matched fashions yeah. or held well, on to some things and got rid of other things. Well, I, I work in, with a, a maybe a more sort of uh, a different sort of group because visible mending and repairing has been a, a big part of the uh, the textile and costume community. And so um, I... I think that we'll, not an all over shift, but I think there'll be some uh, at least evidence um, for us to follow in the future too. Let's finish up by um, just a sort of the body skimming neoclassical. Mm -hmm. And then would it be fair to say that there's that women's fashion with the body skimming neoclassical dress goes through a uh, sort of a simpler style at first, and then reverts to sort of um, something more complex. Is yeah. that does it does it sort of sort of go down and then step back up? Is that well? It's actually it's it's this time period in women's fashion in the nineteenth century is is really incredibly complex on a variety of levels. It, well, I mean, I, just just a, as you said that you clued me in on this is Abigail Adams. We'll give the it's a famous Gilbert Stuart portrait. Right. She's wearing this body skimming neoclassical dress, but she's completely changed it right. from being immodest to being something more suitable to a woman of her time and age. I don't right. Know. Yeah. Exactly. She has got a chemisette, uh, mm -hmm. it, and she's wearing her cap, of course, mm -hmm. too. Um, and she writes, as you'll see in the book, uh, thanks again to, to Sarah Giorgini and Sarah Martin and the editors of the, the Adams Papers at MHS, who um, uh, had uh, been doing transcriptions, we were able to publish some uh, great material from the Adams letters where, you know, Abigail Adams is talking about the immodesty that she's seen in some of these gowns. It's really quite wonderful to read her uh, behind the scenes take on what's happening. But the, the, what happened, there are a number of things that happen and part of that relates to what we're talking about, which is the ability to have machine fabricated clothing. So if you think about mid 18th century, so I think around 1850, you start to have a sewing machine and you have the ability to create your own clothes or to buy more clothes. The same time you have chemical dyes coming in, so you can get these bright pinks and greens and reds and mauves without the same expense. So you're starting even in the, by the 18, and you also have to think about textile production after the revolution increases dramatically. Every one of these New England mill towns is either producing some sort of textile or shoes or some or hats or some sort of thing. Um, it's, it's a whole group of different things that happen that make it possible. So you go from this neoclassical uh, gown style, um, and that starts to change already in the 1820s and 30s, where they're adding poof sleeves and more detail and so on and so on. It, it, by the time you get to the S-curve S shape of the end of the century, you're, you're dealing with a, a very different, not only aesthetic, but also a different woman. 
Um, you've got women who are uh, now, many more who are out working. You have women who are in secretarial positions who uh, are walking. You see changes in shoes that indicate that, for example. Um, so there are a whole series of reasons, and I, I, I think I'd be um, remiss to, uh, to sum it up too superficially because it was so incredibly complex. Let's, uh, we need to, this has gone on, this has been a special holiday episode um, of the podcast, but it, as you had alluded to earlier, one of the delights for a historian who wants to cross-reference their sources is to see the actual material piece and then to look at a portrait of mm -hmm. Andrew Oliver uh, where he's wearing the very same waistcoat. It's fantastic. Yeah. And to see how it's different and how it's, as you said, it's lifted a little with the metal. And to compare and contrast those two sources, it's delightful. Um, so I asked you in the in the notes, I asked you, what do you wish there was an example of the Massachusetts Historical Society? And I'm now guessing that if you prepared an answer, it might be a material example of something in a portrait that the society also has. Well, actually, you know, I was Am thinking. I, right? <laughs> I was actually thinking along a different line because okay. because one of the things that's exciting about what um, uh, the Massachusetts Historical Society is doing and, and Catherine Algor, the uh, president, has been spearheading, is is actually bringing in examples from things like recent uh, banners from Women's March, masks okay. from COVID, pussy mm -hmm. hats, things like that, and inviting mm -hmm. people after. Uh, to drop off some of their own um, uh, connections to some of these current events so that you actually can continue to keep on collecting these things that are important to Massachusetts. So I was thinking more about the fact that there's still a continuation. And in fact, recently, um, an item of homespun uh, blue and white cloth uh, either made and or worn by a uh, Roxbury school teacher is going to end up in the collection. So, so which is exciting for other reasons. Um, so I, I hadn't thought so much about that in, in the way that you were thinking. I'm sorry. Well, I was thinking, you know, I, I was thinking what I would like, and this is, this relates to the DNA evidence. Yeah. Uh, what was Ben Franklin's father's name? Was it Hosiah? Uh, he was a candle maker. Mm -hmm. I would like I would like a tradesman's apron from Boston. Yeah, yes. Um, which unwashed, mm -hmm. with plenty of things to sample from it. <laughs> yeah. In the future, now or in the future. Yeah. And I just I mean you always hear about tradesmen's aprons and I guess there's some pictures of them. Yes. But but what were they really? Yeah. You know I right. mean how substantial they must have been substantial. Mm -hmm. uh, they must have been akin to like some of them must have been like wearing a buff coat depending on the the trade. Right. Well. Uh, you know. Up in uh, Newmarket, I'm, I'm in New Hampshire, um, and I'm on the board of the Newmarket Historical Society, and we have a very, very thick leather apron. It's 19th century, but mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, for most of us, just wearing the thing would have been... Um... Right. <laughs> and you see that, I mean, I guess, I mean, that's a, that's a carpenter's apron from the 19th century, even the 20th century mm -hmm. I've seen. Yeah. Well, when I was a little boy in the 19th, a tiny boy in the 1970s, I can vaguely remember old carpenters who still use saws, yeah. you know, hand saws, wearing a very thick leather apron. 
Right. And you can see if you're working with hammers and nails, it makes sense. Right. If you um, go to Strawberry Bank and visit with Ron Raceless, the cooper at Strawberry Bank, he has uh, leather aprons that he goes through um, over a number of years. But so, so um, yeah. But aprons, again, male and female aprons are another point of fascinating study, I think. Yeah. But again, that'll have to be another day. <laughs> <laughs> My guest today has been Kimberly S. Alexander. She is the author, along with a, a host of supporting characters, of Fashioning the New England Family, based on the exhibition presented at the Massachusetts Historical Society, October 2018, April 2019. Kimberly, thanks so much for once again being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you, and I hope that, uh, that we'll be able to uh, do another talk sometime in the not-too-distant future. Absolutely. Thank you, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend, or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 